I took the long way to nowhere at all. I went to a payphone with no one to call. Saw golden sunsets I couldn't describe. It may take a long time to find your tribe. Who votes to be homeless, to be unemployed? Who votes for kindness to be destroyed? They offer just hatred or suicide. I'm old, but I'm happy. I found my tribe. You don't have to be thin. The house doesn't open. Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was The Lilac Time and The Long Way from their new album, Dance Till All the Stars Come Down. And that's because I've got one of my favourite songwriters of all time, Stephen Duffy here from The Lilac Time. A huge welcome, Stephen. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Your new album, Dance Till All the Stars Come Down. Tell us a little bit about it. It's our 11th album, I think. The second or third 
that we've recorded down here in this basement here in Cornwall. And on this one, I decided not to play any bass or drums because I always I enjoy playing the bass and drums. And I just think that sometimes it takes me away into me enjoying myself and not necessarily other people. And the other reason was without the bass and drums covering up all of the mistakes, I had to make sure that the the guitar was good and the voice was good and the lyrics were good. And I don't know why I haven't done this before. It has produced a much stronger record. I love it. And we opened with The Long Way. So the lyrical element of that, is that reflecting some of the political climate that we've been over the last five or six years? Yes. I think that it's impossible not to reflect in song about what's going on because it's it's just so awful. But I've always done it in the song for the second album that I think was a B-side done for. I kind of go on about um, we made the Philistines run and the Philistines have really come back to give us a kicking this time round. Yeah, it's just been an awful time for people. And as John Harris said in The Guardian a few weeks ago about the hopelessness that is overtaking people, you know, I don't think we've ever known this kind of hopelessness. So, yeah, there is a bit of that in there. What do I say? I can't remember. I say something. (laughs) I'm always saying something. One of the advanced tracks from the album was a makeshift raft. Was that about refugees? Yes, it it started off about um, the tragic inspiration was that kid who died on the beach, the uh, the Syrian refugee. And I, I wrote the first verse when that happened. And I left it because I just couldn't see where a song could go, you know, and I thought, well, I'd kind of summed all of that up in the first verse. And then Trump got in and the Brexit thing happened. So, you know, that inspired another couple of verses. So, I mean, it really, this was pieced together over many years, lyrically adding stuff. And then at the end, I just thought, this is got to cheer this up a bit. So I I wrote a jolly denouement because you've got to leave them smiling. (laughs) And the lilac time at the minute, it's yourself your brother Nick as well, and your wife, Claire? Yes. Although she wasn't my wife when she joined in 1999, but she is now. Well, I mean, it's always been my brother and I, we started the band in 87, although I'd recorded some of the tracks from the first album in 86. But when Claire joined, then it did become, well, the the harmony vocals became more important, and Nick has always played the banjo and the accordion and all of the the more esoteric instruments. So as a three-piece, it's worked very well. And of course, these days you can't really, well, I mean, we don't tour, but it would certainly, I don't think I could go back to sleeping on people's floors and that sort of thing, which is what, you know, what is happening now. And across this podcast, we've got about 10 tracks here, which hopefully give an indication of your music. It's an impossibility to summarise it in one podcast. The next track is The Devil's Aztec Moon, which was recorded about 20 years ago with Nick Rhodes. But first, I thought it'd be worth asking about Birmingham as a musical place, given you from there. And especially your generation, the 60s, Roy Wood and that very vibrant music scene of Birmingham. I assume that was influenced in terms of when you were first starting to get into music. Well, it was an incredible scene. And my uncles and cousins had a band called Bobby Valentine and the G-Men. And on bass was Colin Tooley, who changed his name to Carl Wayne. 
And ah. when my cousin Robert left, he then became the lead singer and he changed his name to Carl Wayne. And then obviously that he went on to be in the move. So, I mean, it was going on around us. I actually played cricket with Colin Tooley. Well, <laughs> I was a kid and he drove past and uh, I was playing cricket with his neighbours, well, the son of his parents' neighbours. And he stopped and he played cricket with us for about 15 minutes, which I thought was kind of an astonishing thing for somebody married to somebody from Crossroads and still in the move to do, you know, to go and play with two 10-year-olds. So it was it was all around and it was a fantastic scene, you know, mothers in Erdington. And you just, you know, you could feel it. It was a really, you felt like you were in a, not a prosperous town. Well, yeah, I mean, it was. You, you felt like there's something always going on. And, you know, we had the arts lab and it was fantastic. It was a fantastic place to grow up. And then in 1977, we had Barbarella's and The Crown and Rebecca's and we had all of these clubs. So we had all of the punk bands would come and play because we were only 90 minutes up the road, you know. They could go back to London. They didn't have to hire. They didn't have to sleep on any of this floor. And uh, so, yeah, it was. It felt like an, an amazing place to grow up. Although, because I was a big fan of the Incredible String Band, I did think that I ought to be living in a forest next to a stream <laughs> for most of my childhood. <laughs> Slight contrast to the Incredible String Band. It, it was punk that got you really involved, was it? Uh, well, no, actually, it was the Incredible String Band that got right. me. They were the first band I ever saw. I saw them at the town hall when I was nine or ten. I just finished playing cricket with Colin Tooley, with uh, Carl Wayne. <laughs> and I, my brother got into the Incredible String Band. He was four years older. And uh, so my parents took us to see the Incredible String Band, and it was the classic Robin Williams and Mike Heron, yeah. Licky and Rose lineup. And um, and we, we saw them a couple of times with that lineup and then we actually we saw you know as they tried to become more poppy we saw the you know the awful end to us as well and we, i was lucky we met them them after one gig we went backstage so i mean which was sort of like meeting god or something for a youngster it was so magical and it was so different to anything that that really did you just thought to be able to do that to be able to produce that kind of magic because they just sat with a few instruments and made this absolutely magical sound. I mean, it was it really was transcendent. And that was at the town hall. But then three years later, the first gig I went to see by myself or with a friend, you know, without mm. was the, the Ziggy Stardust tour. So that must have been 50 years ago, just before he gave up the um yeah. Ziggy. So the town hall was a fantastic place in the Odeon. And you know, it was I saw Dr. Feelgood supporting Hawkwind at the Odeon in 1975 that was another amazing i mean dr feelgood was just so incredible that it was it virtually impossible to concentrate on hawkwind after that so yes it was there was so much going on but punk i suppose by that point i was 17 and you know it just felt very it felt well i mean it was right for the time and i was right up for it and not being a very i mean i'd spent a lot of time miming in front of the mirror and uh but being a folky and not being a very good guitarist, it was kind of, it wasn't that great for me, you know. But me and my brother did play a couple of folk gigs and stuff. Then I got into the folk thing. I mean, the, uh, well, I, I got into, I don't know what I got into. I got into a, a halibut. Make sure you don't make friends like those folks. So where did Nick Rhodes and John Taylor come in? Was that a high school or college? Or It was art college. Right. The On the first day going into 
art college, I saw these two guys and I thought, well, there's the drummer from TBI and there's there's the guitarist from Dada who I'd seen at the at the Crown, I think supporting the Swell Maps. And I knew that the drummer was still in TBI. So on the second day there, I went up to John and said, what, you know, what are you up to? You know, I saw I saw you and he, he wasn't up to anything. So virtually on the second day of being at art school, we we started the Durands. What instrumentation was there? Was it synth based? Well, he he played the guitar. He was kind of trying to get away from pretending to be Johnny Thunders. And I played the bass. And then his friend, Nick, who just left school, he was 16. Um, his dad bought him a wasp synthesizer. And we used to rehearse over the over the his parents' toy shop, Bates's Toy Corner. And that was the, kind of the beginning of what I've done ever since. We went to there and we we I had some songs. We wrote a few songs together. And then we did a gig. It was kind of like we wrote the songs, we prepared them, and then we we played them at the art college the first time and then did three other gigs and you said aztec moon is the first song that you wrote that had an identifiable chorus yeah i was standing in um, my bedroom in uh, sir john's road in birmingham just around the corner from the selly park tavern and i was strumming away and i I just got um, mexico city blues the poetry book by jack kerouac for christmas and i was halfway through it and there was this poem called Aztec Moon, or it mentioned an Aztec Moon in it. And I was strumming away, A minor, and uh, enjoying myself. And then suddenly I went to D or something. And instead of just carrying on like all of my songs had done, I made this magical leap and it, and it went up. And it was like, wow, this is what a song ought to do. It should go up at the chorus. And even though it was sort of, I sang we will climb every mountain, every one before me placed, and I will climb up to the stars, for to the stars I'm not disgraced. Which I was 17 and, you know, still at school. So, I mean, what the hell was that all about? But that was the first song that was any good, really. And then when we started the Durands, I played it to them, and that was one of the first songs we did. Destination is unclear 
Didn't seem that long that you were in the first embryonic. No, it's the it's the it's the fifteen minutes that I've really had to talk about <laughs> quite considerably. You know, that's why I say be careful what friends you make because you might end up talking about it for the rest of your life. But the um, yeah, we did four gigs. It was nothing. It was, it was about a year, but it was that first yeah. year. It was that, and it was the thing. You know, I learning well for me, learning how to write a lot of songs, preparing them. And then putting them on stage, you know, it was, a, it was what I've done virtually ever since. Dark Circles, which was the Devil's album from just over 20 years ago, that was kind of the album that you'd have made with Duran Duran if things would have developed. Is that right? That was the idea. Because I bumped into Nick years and years later, and he kind of looked up at me and said, why did you leave? And again, you know, we went for lunch a couple of days later, and we, we decided to make a record. Because there was, it was all there. I mean, we'd, we'd already written the songs. So we pretended it was 1979. We got a load of old synths and drum machines. And we made this record. And, we, you know, we really thought it was quite good. We thought it was going to sell, but it didn't. It sold about 500 copies. But the one person who did like it was, was Robbie Williams. And when he came to uh, write that first song with me, he saw all these synths and I gave him a copy of the record. And he loved it. That's what he wanted to do then on. He was like... That was radio, was it? Yeah, let's do that. But we're jumping ahead a bit. <laughs> Mind you, it's so funny that that came out 20 years ago, because I still think of it as being quite 
a recent thing. Very much so. So after Duran Duran, was it obviously Five Believers, which yeah. became the Hawks? Yeah, I have the record here, obviously Five Believers. So that I'd left John and Nick and got together with TBI, right. the other Birmingham band. And uh, But the trouble with Birmingham was the because it was so close to London, all of the grown-ups had gone to London, so we were just left with a bunch of stoners. You know, there was nobody there to give you any sort of sensible fatherly advice musically, you know, because, you know, even to the point of playing in time or things, I mean, there was no, it was it was just the obviously five believers. And the, the trouble, the, the great misfortune of obviously five believers was that Bob Lamb, who produced our first demos, couldn't fit obviously five believers on the cassette box label. And so so he thought that it was too long, that we ought to have a different name. Whereas obviously by and then along came all of the long band names, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. I mean, how they got that onto a cassette, <laughs> I don't know. Bob Lamb would have had a, a stroke. Incredible string band is quite long. Exactly. Tintin. So was that was that actually a group then originally? Well, after when I realized that we were never going to get anywhere, not that it was, I was thinking about getting anywhere, but when I realized that we couldn't that We'd done everything. There was no point in going forward. Nobody was really interested. So I thought either I'm going to be an acoustic troubadour or go back to the electronic thing. So I wrote Kiss Me. Was, Kiss Me was the first song I wrote after leaving the Durands. So I, I was going to Rockers Records one day and uh, on her street and Mulligan from Fashion, who Duran had supported at the last gig I played with them, Mulligan from Fashion came out of the uh, the record shop, and again within about twenty four hours, we decided to make a record. I mean, this is a recurring theme, as you can see, <laughs> and that rec- and that record was Kiss Me because he Fashion had got this deal with Arista, so they had loads of gear. You know, they had the Jupiter Eight, and the and he know, he knew how to program a sequencer, which was just sort of virtually occult stuff back in the day. So. We, we went in and it was Dick Davis from Fashion, uh, Mulligan and Stoker from Dex's Midnight Runners and by that point, the Bureau. And we went back to Bob Lamps and we did it. And the EMI publishing had given us £500 and I think we spent you know £600 and they went absolutely nuts. And I think that gave them the impetus to get us a deal because they just had to get their £600 back. So then... Strangely, this guy looked like Tintin, signed us. But because Dick and Mulligan were already signed to our Arista and and Stoker was signed to WEA anyway with the Bureau, I was the only person who signed the contract. So I kind of became Tintin by default. So that was another great idea that I've been saddled with for <laughs> ever since. But, you know, could be worse. We're featuring one of the earlier versions of the track here. This is the, this is the version with Dick and Stoker. And uh, Mulligan, and it's kind of it's really interesting because Dick and Stoker are playing live together, so that's why it has this fantastic rhythmical thing going on. You know, so even though it was sort of an electro record, it also had that live in the room thing from a previous generation. You know, it's a track that had a number of remixes, and each time it seemed to get poppier and jollier, and eventually became a huge hit over here and the US. Yes, it, well, this is the version I like. Because then after that, the when I signed to Virgin, they wanted me to re-record it, and we did it with the Art of Noise, 
so they were big on the Fairlight thing. So to me, it just became a gimmick record, really, the gimmick being the Fairlight, and it doesn't really float my boat. big hit in 85 yeah you followed that up and, and had a, another hit but about a year after kiss me became a hit you were dropped by the label well the icing on the cake was a hit and then the first single from the second album came out unkiss that kiss and it was and it you know they'd moved on and uh, they had bands who'd spent a lot more money like scritty politi so the money was behind them 
And we were quite a way down the pecking order anyway, being on a Virgin subsidiary called 10. But I've been trying to get away from that sound, from the dance music I'd done. Like I did this song called Wednesday Jones with the Dixieland feel and and on the second album, Because We Love You, had some strings and was moving towards that witch season Donovan-y kind of thing, going back to what I liked when I was a teen. And uh, I went in and demoed Return to Yesterday and Rockland and a few other things. and. Yeah, I was out the door before you, Dave, because they just want, and, you know, fair enough, they wanted me to carry on making dance records. Some of that material from Because We Love You, especially the stuff with that you did with Stephen Street, like Sunday Supplement, yeah. typifies that other side, which is probably more you in terms of that sound. And listening today, it's timeless. It doesn't date, whereas the stuff that's got the 80s production over it is very much of its time. Well, that's how I felt at the time. I realised that the gated reverb on the snares and, you know, the DX7, all of the, that these were going to sound very much of their time. And strangely, their time has returned. But, yeah, I, I didn't like it. I, you kind of figured it out. Well, especially Kiss Me, you realised that this was going to sound, within 18 months, two years, it was going to sound dated. So it was a I did want to return to the acoustic guitar and strings and all of that. And if that had been a successful record, then then perhaps I could have gone further into that with Virgin, which would have been great because to have been able to carry on working with Stephen Street and having strings and all of that on those early Lifetime records would have been fantastic.
I was dropped we went not lo-fi but we certainly went independent and we put out the record on um, swordfish which was the record label of the rockers record shop in Birmingham and that's the first lilac time album yeah so in terms of the formation of the lilac time you linked up with your brother Nick I said if I buy you an accordion will you be in the band and he said yes he already had a banjo so we went off to the um the house pictured on the cover with Michael Weston, who played the piano, and we we just rehearsed the songs and then went back to Bob Lambs and, and made the record very quickly in a couple of weeks. That was released independently, as you said, um, Swordfish. 1987, yeah. Which is, you know, strange because that was two years after Kiss Me had been a hit. So, I mean, it was, it, but, you know, at the time it felt like a lifetime, you know. So when we were doing the, Return to yesterday. I mean, it was. It seemed like so far in the distance, but uh, we did take it round the majors. And one person said, "You know, this sounds nothing like." I wonder what they said. It sounded Rick Astley. I don't. I can't. Was it Rick Astley already? <laughs> and so they really didn't. They just thought. I don't think anybody thought this is so far ahead of its time that it's fantastic. I think everybody thought this is just kind of old-fashioned because I, presumably people like Fairport. And all of those witch season artists had only been dropped about five years before. Yeah. But to me, I was filled with, you know, I thought, well, I thought I was Bob Dylan. I really did. I was kind of absolutely out of my mind on ego and vanity. And I just thought I was going to change the world, you know, with with an acoustic guitar. You have to be like that. Otherwise, you know, I'm all for absolute lunatic, obsessive behavior if it involves an acoustic guitar. And a banjo. It's a bit of a contrast. There's footage of um, Lilac Time playing Roland Rat. Yes. We've returned to yesterday. And 
you don't anticipate a banjo on Roland Rat. No, Roland was did raise an eyebrow. It has to be said when he when he saw there was a banjo, and the record company was so appalled by our miming that we were actually sent to miming classes, <laughs> which I and I'd mimed myself around the world before this, so I was very appalled at the thought that my miming wasn't up to scratch. But um, there we are.
and you were very productive in that period with the Lilac Time, producing the albums Paradise Circus and Love for All Astronauts. So it was a very creative time for you, and, and the songs must have been flowing out. Well, yes, since we signed to Fontana, I did that crazy thing of the amazing sort of traffic, the 60s thing. I did actually say, well, we're going to leave London and we're going to get, get our heads together in the country. So we all moved out to Malvern and into Herefordshire, Mathon, and we we just rehearsed in this really old farmhouse, and everybody stayed there. And I had a little house on the on the hill in Morven. So it was very much like there was a separation there that I should have realized wasn't healthy. My brother used to complain about crumbs in the butter, I think. But that was, you know, it was a great time. And we played strangely. There was this flat bit of grass outside and we we played loads of badminton. I have no idea why, but we we were quite sort of, we got very good at badminton. But it, there wasn't a phone there. And um, obviously, Fontana and Mercury were trying to break us in the States. And we'd have to walk across fields and down muddy lanes to get to the pub where there was a phone box outside. So it was kind of, we were getting our heads together in the country and getting good at badminton, but we weren't really, it was never going to work breaking America from Herefordshire without a phone. It was difficult. It was tricky for everybody. Because Andy Partridge was involved in some tracks on and Love for All. Yes. Was that your idea or the labels? Uh, my manager managed Andy and XTC at that point. So I suppose it was a Paradise Circus was a, uh, a hit at um, college stations in America, got to number 10. And so at that point, XTC were the darlings of college radio. So it seemed like a brilliant idea to get Andy to produce the, the singles so that we could capitalize on this success unfortunately in between finishing the record and it coming out that manager left and alan mcgee came in who was completely unaware of the success we'd had in america and started to focus everything on england so we, we went off and played these huge tours to people who didn't want to see us which made nick leave because he just so, well, this is, we're never, we did one gig at the Cambridge Folk Festival where we actually played to people who might actually have wanted to see music like that. And then we moved on to creation and made the Astronauts record, but we were on our last legs by that point because we'd come kind of close to doing something and we were just so confused. To go from Andy Partridge and Love for All to Dreaming and Creation, We had, so we actually split up before the record came out. How did you get involved with Nigel Kennedy? Was it the West Midlands Birmingham connection? Well, I didn't know that he had actually lived in Solihull, but when we met through, well, the fall was signed to Fontana, so I met Bricks, and Bricks said, "Do you want to come to the uh, the football?" Because we talked about. I don't know how Aston Villa came up, but I said, "Yeah, I used to go to see Aston Villa when I was a kid with my granddad." She said, oh, "You should come with my boyfriend." And I thought, Marky Smith <laughs> supports Aston Villa. This is crazy. But then we found out it was Nigel, and Nigel came over to the house in Malvern. We well, actually we went to see it. We went to see a football match on Boxing Day, Manchester United. We beat Manchester United. It was before Ferguson right. had his golden reign had begun. 
I think Nigel just thought, if I put my foot down, I can get to Villa Park very quickly from Morven. So within weeks, he'd bought the house like three doors up. So we were we were neighbours. And actually, he said, "What when I played him astronauts, he said, what on earth are you doing? You know, you should get the band back together and get out there and promote this. But it's all over. So I actually then went on tour with him because he'd hurt his neck in a, a neck operation. So I went to Australia with him. Actually, did Julie Christie from Because We Love You and Black Velvet. And uh, after that tour, we decided to make a record together. And that was directly, that was like weeks after the astronauts record had come out. So it was, so by January of the next year, I was signed to EMI and we were making music in colours. Nigel Kennedy at the time, I don't know if people remember, was he'd been selling millions, certainly in the mid to late 80s as well. So he was a a huge name. He was a very massive star. And especially going to the football, I mean, it was like, he was like the Beatles or something, you know, or royalty. It was kind of like people were nuts around him but it was you know that was fun it was a fun time but the record was got very intense and it is it's quite an intense record because we decided that we'd stick all of the songs together with little transition pieces so it became this quite a grueling well not grueling but those gaps in between songs they kind of serve a purpose that's for sure so it became a record that you really did have to sit down and kind of listen to as a piece which People were just dying for streaming to be invented and they didn't really want it. But I thought it was going to be, I thought this is going to revolutionize music because Nirvana had happened. And I didn't realize that Nirvana happening meant that there was going to be a lot of bands sounding like Nirvana. I just thought this meant that any kind of crazy shit could happen, you know, and it was going to be successful. So my, I was with EMI for a bit and then I went off and did the Duffy record in that way that you do. We'd, we'd done this huge orchestral well, not orchestral, but it was three 24-track machines linked together with Nigel playing all of these parts. And immediately after that, I went off to Kerner's. No, I went to the drive-in, actually, and worked with Mitch Easter and Velvet Crush, which was the beginning of the the Duffy album. Going back to uh, Music and Colours, the album that you did with Nigel Kennedy, yeah, Natalie, the song, the single, was a was a hit in uh, quite a few places around the world. And it's the sort of song that these days we're streaming would take off more universally. It was a hit in Mexico, which I didn't find out until I went there with Rob 2006 or something. And I was always, I was very disappointed because I thought a hit in Mexico at that point, it could have changed my life. I could have gone off their little apartment in Mexico City. It would have been fantastic. And it was also quite popular in Greece, but uh, not in Britain. And so we're chasing so insecure, we're frightened. Now I'm sleeping What did we do wrong? While love bereaves me, I can't believe in me. Natalie, it 
Going back to the Duffy album, which is where I first heard of you, given my particular generation, an interesting contrast in a way, because I think you said it was recorded in America with American new musicians, but obviously the music climate over here in the UK in the mid-90s, it did seem to hit a chord with um, quite a few people, given what was going on uh, over here. Which was very, well, I suppose I did mention Britpop in the song London Girls, yeah, where I was sort of writing about, because I'd, by that point I was living in, in Camden, so I was sort of writing about it journalistically. But I don't even think it was called Britpop at that point. And I was sort of referring more to the 60s Britpop. And yeah, it was a completely American record. I don't think anybody apart from, yeah, it was like 99% all American. But, you know, at that point, if somebody said, we're going to put your record out, it's Britpop. I would have said, fine, just do, you know, 
I'm happy. What was it like at the time? Obviously, you were in Me, 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 who had a sit hanging around and. Yeah. I'd moved to Covent Garden and bumped into Alex in the booze section of the local supermarket. We kind of got to know each other. And they would go there. I think that was just around the time Modern Life is Rubbish was happening, which obviously was produced by Stephen Street. So we had, you know, there were things in common. And then um, we got friendlier. But hanging around was for a film, a Damien Hirst film. He said, I've got to do this music for this film. So we met up one morning in a cheap studio underneath Pizza Express near the British Museum, and we banged it out. And it, it, it turned for a live piece of music made for a film i thought it was quite good so i kept my head down and it did eventually become a single we were going to be called front bottom adams at one point which would have i think would have precluded that we wouldn't have got in the charts so you continue releasing music after duffy yeah again i've read some label difficulties yeah we, we started to make the the next album after hanging around the me 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 thing so we were, i was back with stephen street and we made the record and RCA didn't want to release it. So eventually it came out on Cooking Vinyl. And I didn't work with the major label again until I did the Rob record. So it kind of put me off because it was, I did feel as if I'd finally made a, a really good record with I Love My Friends. You know, I thought it was a real complete piece of work. So that was very disappointing. But uh, I'd had a very good run. So, I mean, it was, it was hardly. I couldn't really moan that much, although I did. <laughs> so by the late 90s, you reactivated the Lilac Time? Yes, it seemed to be going back in that way. And again, the first Lilac Time album and the Lilac Time had been inspired by the witch season artists of Joe Boyd. And also seeing Don't Look Back Again on the, it was the first time it was shown on BBC television, was on my 26th birthday. And Getting the Lilac Time back together was triggered by reading that weird old America book by Graham Marcus about the basement tapes. So we got back together in, in my brother's garage. He was still living up in Herefordshire. So we just reconvened with the same equipment that we'd made astronauts on nine years earlier and, and started again. And a dream that we all share fits into, as you say, that that lilac time feeling. Uh, yeah, I was in the, uh, that's about kind of getting into therapy because my father had died years before, but I don't think I'd ever really sort of dealt with it. So I was in therapy and it, that's all about, I was running down your street, I'd lost my way because the first time I went to therapy, I was late because I, I'd lost. So, I mean, I was uh, really writing down what was happening. But I played um, the Duffy record to to my therapist, and she thought it was like this mad code. She just didn't understand any of it. And that sort of inspired me to kind of think, okay, well, maybe this is some mad pop code I'm writing in. And it did lead me to a more autobiographical or style of writing. That was a big turning point. Write down the dreams or you'll forget She told me when we met 
that holds the key to what you're feeling. Do you think I could be your mate and your one true friend? Let me tell you what I'm feeling. She used to think the sun would shine forever, but that's a dream that we all share. To walk back down the avenue, doing all the things we used to do, that's a dream that we all share. Making love all Running down your streets, I had lost my way. I couldn't hear what I was saying. You want the truth, and so do I, but it won't come from me. You got to talk as if you're praying. She used to think that love would last forever, but that's a dream that. Next got another track from uh, yourself and the Lilac Time, and that's Bank Holiday Monday. And there's some, uh, there's a great line in there, if I recall it rightly, which is reflecting on things being suffocating for John Lennon and leaving the country. And was that how kind of how you felt? Well, it, I suppose it's the way we we are now with this amazing, um, you know, this right wing blanket of 
if ever there is a blob, you know, they keep on talking about the blob, but they are the blob. The Daily Express readers are the blob. And it's talking about how Lennon and Auden, you know, went away to America because they couldn't live in this stifling, petty little England. But this was the record that we released just before I started to work with Rob and Claire was playing in the Rob band as well as being in the Lilac Time and she gave it to him. So this this was why we started to work together. Although his favourite song actually was The Family Coach from Looking for a Day in the Night. Which he recorded a, a version of. Yes, he did, yeah. When did you first meet? Was it around that period or earlier? Well, the first time we met must have been when we were on the Top of the Pops doing Me, Me, Me. He was number two with Freedom, his first solo single. So we were around. And then when I was making I Love My Friends, he was doing Life Through a Lens. Or So we were around and we, li- we lived literally a few streets apart. So I'd see him and he'd, he mentioned writing together, but I just thought EMI would have me assassinated if I kind of got in the way of what he was up to. And I think they probably wanted to when we started to work together after Guy left. So after keep going then the next thing i did was was the intensive care album and that took me away for like two or three years and it was very successful it sold eight million records and i came back put the lilac time back together and we went out and sold another 500 records it was kind of like it was a very rude awakening playing stadiums and then coming back and uh, the run out groove record bombing so massively because when we played we actually got the whole band back together when we were promoted when we played um and Keep Going came out and we played Cecil Sharp House. And so we really felt like we were back on our way. But after three years away, I suppose that's when streaming happened and the whole economics of this of this thing had disintegrated. And I came back, put the band back together, went out, did some shows, and I was recording it all on Pro Tools and I had this guy filming it. And it was just like, so, so you actually see me realising that this is a complete, what we know, I was on a completely different planet to where music was at at that point. It must have been quite a strange period because it's the very end of that CD era, the physical music, mass media. You've got the contrast between Robbie Williams, who at the time was the the biggest pop star and and stadiums. But from a, a solo perspective, a lot of the mechanisms that artists have now weren't quite in place. To fall through the cracks must have been much more common for artists. Yeah, I think that everybody, nobody really had an idea what was happening. I think I probably cottoned onto it sooner than a lot because it had disappeared. What our um, economic model of how we managed to keep the band going had disappeared completely. But I went from, when Intensive Care came out, it sold a million copies, physical copies in a day worldwide. And then we put out Run Out Groove and it, it sold like 25 copies, you know, in a day. And it was and it was like, okay, this isn't going to be as easy. And then we didn't, we didn't make a record after that for quite some time. In fact, I thought that that might be it. Because I saw Nick Rhodes after this and, he, and I said, what's going to happen? And he said, oh, it'll recover. Maybe not in our lifetime which wasn't very reassuring. Your albums in its totality, they're all consistently very, very strong, including Run Out Group, but A Dream of a Girl as a song, for example, is just as good as tracks that are on albums that sell 10 million or whatever, but for some reason it doesn't hit the zeitgeist and can be completely missed. Well, I think that when you go to Spotify or something and it says what is 
my radio or what is where do they group me on those things and it's always nick haywood lloyd cole which isn't really what we're doing you know even though like those guys but it's not what i'm doing isn't that you know what i mean but it's always been the same with the light time we've never got through to the people who might like us you know we've never found our audience but you know there's still time And so our final track is from your new album, 
with The Lilac Time, the band that nobody knew. And is that a song lyrically that reflects your experience of The Lilac Time? I think it reflects anybody who's ever got in the van and driven around playing to 25 people or back in the van when I thought that you'd all understand. And I, when I say you, I mean you, God, the universe too. Mm. And just that the way that you, I loved how it felt between towns because that was the, that was always a great moment, you know, when you left the one place and you're on the way to the next. But then, yes, it is, it's a song. It's, you know, it's the ballad of any, every band, I think. And the reviews that are coming in are really, really positive. So that's always great to see a, a good reception for the album as well. Well, let's, let's see. Fingers crossed. Because, yeah, next year we have a, um, I'm putting together this huge 20 CD career overview thing. So hopefully this will ignite a bit of interest in that and people can start saving. It's a great thing to put out in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. As I said, 10 Tracks is is just a, a tiny reflection on, on your wonderful music. The new album by The Lilac Time, Dance Till All The Stars Come Down, is is one of your best, and that's, that's a very high watermark. So um, a huge thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me. Brilliant. Good to see you. Bye. Ups and the downs 
that's dropped by the clowns What was the name Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.